and welcome to Tabletop Game Talk, On Topic, a show where we talk about tabletop gaming topics of all kinds. I'm one of your hosts, Fletcher. And I'm Chris, and this week, Kitty lost her voice, so Fletcher and I are taking over and talking about developing digital versions of board games. Sounds exciting, I know. From the so-so implementation of Ganshan Clever to the amazing Gloomhaven, only available on Steam, the amount of time and effort turn-based, or, well, the amount of effort that is involved in developing board games and digitally can drastically vary. But today we're going to talk about what it takes to turn a board game from a cardboard game to a digital version from a developer's point of view, because Fletcher and I are both developers. But don't worry, we're not going to do a lot of tech jargon. So if you've already like went to press the off button, don't. this will be educational for everybody, not just techies. But techies, we're going to talk about PHP a little bit, too. Um, but first, as always, the thank you to our Patreon friends of the show, Adam Harrison, Miles Clark, Sahara Wentworth, and the Gift of Games and Grace Lake. And thank you to all of our other patrons as well. Um, join our Zoom audience, where today we talked about our Sentry game for most of the pre-show, as everyone else was watching the five of us play Sentry. And it, it was really riveting. I'm not selling this, am I? No, you're not. Hmm. You're doing a bad job. All right. Well, um, how about our Discord? Join our Discord. Uh, lots of Wordle. We're now doing Quartal. Uh, Sydney's like, no, 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 Quartal's more fun. I'm like, fine, I'll try it. And then I tried it. And I'm like, oh, man, this really is kind of more fun. So try Quartal. It's it's four Wordles at one time. And I think you get nine total guesses uh, to get the four words. So it's, it is fun. Hmm. Uh, we're posting things constantly and the Quartal interface is actually pretty good too. So each of the little keys, like in Wordle, the keys will turn like yellow or green in Quartal. It's like the upper left, lower right, whatever the quarter is will turn yellow or green based on the position of the word on the board. Um, but yeah, just try it out. I, I'll put a link in the show notes because Quartal is spelled with an O, I think. Um, I have a bookmark. <laughs> Also, join our BGA group. Uh, you can hit up me or Getty19 on BGA or Discord to get you invited to the group. And we are on our second round of the Azul tournament. So, Fletcher, you have a chance to make a comeback here. Good Great. luck. Yeah, after my <laughs> disappointing first showing. Uh, you know, I just look at it as you can only go up. And yeah. <laughs> Great, thanks. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm for everything going up. Just, yeah, just do it. You can do it. Um, but yeah, so who am I paired with? I'm going to check right now. Well, I'm paired with Getty19, so that's great. And Dittography. Um, that, that, I'm not sure who Dittography is, but Dittography, you are paired with me. We are going down because Getty has played this game like 675 times. He's a good player. I'm not even ranked. Mine just says, eh, I'm nothing. <laughs> so, yeah. So Christopher says you could get the most improved trophy if you win your next game. It'll be awesome. Um, yeah, so join our groups. I, uh, I'm thinking of starting a, another tournament while this one is going on. I'm also fairly certain. So the Azul tournament will have like two or three drawings or whatever for prizes or whoever. Um, all our tournaments are going to be participation. But I'm the digital trophy for first place is happening Nobody's sent me an actual good one, so I'm going to just use mine unless I get a better one by the end of the tournament. Oh, sick so, burn. Yeah, I'm just saying. Um, well, nobody sent me anything yet. Anything that someone sent would be oh, better okay. than what I have like, right now. That would be better yeah. <laughs> than the one person that <laughs> thought they sent you something. I'm just going to build a trophy out of Lego and take a picture and be like, all right, this is your digital trophy. 
So yeah, you'll you'll get something, something. I'm also thinking of it's just Chris's emoji with the thumbs up sign. <laughs> Waha! <laughs> Uh, my Mimoji, there's not a lot of good options to make an attractive bald dude in Mimoji. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure that all middle-aged white bald guys have the same Mimoji. And and throw glasses on them, and there you go. It's it's really kind of sad. Uh, let's see. Fletcher, what did you do this week, this weekend? How was life? How, what is, how's things? How's stuff going? Uh, good. Um, I, went, uh, I went down to Chinatown. Literally, there's a Chinatown. <laughs> Chicago's Chinatown. Chicago's Chinatown for uh, for some dim sum. That was fun. I did that this weekend. Um, and that's pretty much it. Just uh, took it easy. Um, however, yesterday, the um, basement flooded with all the storage units. The condo building I'm in, uh, the basement is where the storage units are kept. And apparently the pipe broke that goes to the city's main line, the, the sewer, our sewer line broke before it connects to the city's main line and uh, a bunch of sewage flowed up into the basement. So, so it wasn't flooded. Was it was sewaged. It was sewage. It was flooded with sewage. That's so are you just burning everything? Is that the plan right now? Well, so luckily we have two basements <laughs> and my stuff is in the other basement. But so most of everybody else's stuff is in this basement. So, but yes, like we got a plumber out today, and I'm on the board. That's why I'm talking about it. We had a plumber out today. We're gonna have him back out tomorrow, and then like a cleanup crew, um, and it's gonna be expensive. Yeah, um, I'm a dad, so I, I'm, I'm just gonna repeat this. Getty, Getty says that stinks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which I would, uh, yeah, no, that sounds horrible. If my basement ever flooded. Well, with sewage, we would just sell the house and move someplace else. But you just um, burn it for the yeah. insurance money. Yeah, we're, we're good. We're good. Methane buildup. Oops, the whole thing exploded. What are you going to do? Um, now there's a podcast. I'm going to have to edit that out, aren't I? Oh, well. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I do not want this basement to flood. I live in the basement of my house. Like that is my, it's my office. It's my game room. It's my. You know, I was gonna say adult TV room, but that sounds wrong. It's the TV room that it we does watch. Sound wrong. <laughs> we watch our our non kid shows. Right? We watch those in the basement. Uh, yeah, so I, I love. Well, my maybe basement. you should just get your sewer line checked, just in case. We have double sub pumps, and I'm, it doesn't matter how many sump pumps you have if the sewer line collapses. That's that is a good point. I'm, Which I'm is constantly what looking at it. So this is actually, I want to put a bathroom down here and I'm constantly staring up at the sewer line. I'm like, I think I could do it myself. And now you're convincing me that do not I do probably shouldn't do it yourself. myself. <laughs> ever, ever. Do always hire a plumber, a licensed that, plumber. That is 100% fair and agreed. Um, so something I am, well, not licensed in because I don't think you can actually get licensed in it. You can get certified in some aspects of it. But um, let's talk about writing code so you know oh before we go on if ever, oh. if anybody's wondering why we're not talking about um role oh, playing, playing games, games. yeah because this is supposed to be the role-playing games episode um like chris said uh, kitty's not here she's lost her voice she's not feeling well and we'll probably do role-playing games next episode yeah it'll be not as role-playing gamey as previous ones we're going to compare and contrast role-playing games with um basically role-playing games in a box so gloomhaven versus D or you know some most of, the of them come stuff. in a box most of the ones that come in a box um 
But yeah, so that's why this we're we're out of order. It, we're not professional. We know this. I was we were a lot more professional in the early years where I'm like, oh, I gotta build a reputation and stuff. And now people just keep listening. And I'm like, it doesn't matter what I do, they just keep listening. So why even try anymore? Um again, I need to edit that out. Oh whatever. Um, so anyway, <laughs> let's talk about programming. And the reason why we're taking advantage of Kitty not being here is because Fletcher and I have been programming for between us a while. Um, but Fletcher, I would like to hear your background on how you got into writing codes and what kind of codes do you write and what do you do and what are you working on <laughs> these of- days? And I know the story, but our listeners don't. So ready, go. Um, yes, Chris knows the story. Um, I got into writing code because it was better than working at the Apple Store. I used to work at the Apple Store. Um, and I decided that I'd been there for like three and a half years. And I was like, uh, I had a, had a, had a manager at the time who was actually a pretty good manager. And he was like, Hey, you know, you're smart. You have a degree. This was like circa 2000. Oh, I don't know. 12 or so. Um, he's like, you have a degree in economics. Um, you know, but you're working here at the Apple store. Like, what do you, what do you want to do? If this is what you want to do, cool. But like, if you could do anything, what would, what do you want to do? Um, and I was like, I don't know, like realistically, he was like, no, unrealistically, just like whatever, if you could do anything as a job, what would it be? And I was like, I'd probably want to write code or design hardware for Apple. I like Apple and why I'm working here. But he was like, he was like, oh, well then why don't you do that? And (laughs) it's a very kind of like simple answer. And he was like, he's like, I don't know too much about hardware stuff, but I do know a little HTML and CSS, so I can help you with that. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, and we were already kind of like becoming friends. Um, so I just kind of like got into it and I was like, well, I, you know, there's this great iPhone. I, you know, what language do we use for what language is on the iPhone? You know, how do you write apps for the iPhone? And basically it was like Googling and then like the Stanford lectures that you can like listen to. And then, you know, to make a very long story short, um, there was a coding boot camp, which were very popular at the time. It was a two-month coding boot camp. I graduated, quote unquote, from the coding boot camp, um, looking for a job, and someone knew someone where Chris works, and I went in for an interview as an intern. And Chris is was one of the guys that interviewed me, and he hired me. He was like, "This guy looks like." I could teach him how to code. (laughs) (laughs) I was wrong, but at the time I didn't know that. (laughs) (laughs) It was a bad bet on Chris's part. Yeah. And then Um, we worked together for what? Almost five years, four years. uh, Actually, I think it was three because you left and then came back. All right. I did leave and come back. And then you left about a year after that, I think. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. So Um, Fletcher went from essentially, how old were you when you took the boot camp? I don't know, 20, 28, 29, something like that. All right. So, and, and really what I'm trying, what I'm getting at there is if you want to do something like that, you can do that at any age, yeah. you know, and 29 it's, is it's really not that hard and it's not, yeah. you don't have to be that smart. And I'm living proof that you do not have to be that smart <laughs> to get a job programming. Yeah. Um, there are different, it's really not that hard, but there are different levels, different things you can do that are harder than others, obviously. Um, yes. So my story is a little different. Um, I was a really bad speller in third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, uh, basically my entire 
life. Um, but in fifth grade, I was so bad that they put me in like tutoring. And part of the tutoring thing was you got points and you could spend your points on pencils and erasers, basically the school supply store, right? Um, but one of the things you could do is you could spend your points on time on a computer. And this was 1984, maybe 84, 85, around that time. And I played this game on a Commodore PET. If you know the Commodore PET, then you're as old as I am. And if you don't, it's just one of those super, one of the first kind of possibly personal computers, but usually you'd only found them in schools. Um, and I played a game where there were asterisks on either side of a carrot sign. And you push the left and right arrows as the screen scrolled and you tried to keep the little carrot, like the little up arrow-y looking thing between these two asterisks. It was a racing game. You're just trying to go as far as you could. And I said, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to write video games. That's all I want to do. And from that point on, anytime someone asks me, it's like, what do you want to do when you grow up? I'm like, I'm going to write video games. And everyone, they would laugh and like, no, no, no. What do you really want to do? I'm like, no, that's what I'm going to do. Um, so I got my first computer when I was 11. Uh, it didn't have a disk drive or at that time a tape drive or any way to save. I could turn the computer on. I could write basic. And then if I turned the computer off, everything went away. And that's my first experience with a computer. I was writing code at 11, writing games, because what else are you going to do when you're 11 years old? Um, I eventually went to college. I eventually got a degree in computer science um, with a minor in mathematics and engineering, because there were no game programs at the time. This was 90 or 98 is when I graduated. Um, so in the 90s, you know, you couldn't really get into game development unless you were like already established. And everybody said, no, 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 you can't, you're not gonna be able to graduate and go into game development. You have to have like a job for 10 years before you'll ever find that. I'm like, no, 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 I'm going to do this. My first two interviews out of college was with Midway Games and Bally's. Bally's did slot machines and Midway Games did, you know, Mortal Kombat and NFL Blitz and those types of things. Um, I got job offers from both and spent the next 10 to 12 years writing video games for a living, sleeping under my desk about three days a week. Um you know, around crunch times for video game shows and stuff, working 100 plus hours, like the everything that everything horrible you can think about the game industry was my life. And I loved every bit of it until eventually I, I got tired of it. Um, I left that, did some database programming for a while, then went back into video game um, programming until the iPhone came out. I designed and wrote the first Door of the Explorer iPhone game and Diego iPhone game, because we were working with Nick Jr. at the time on some other stuff. And then once I started doing mobile development, I'm like, oh, I really like this mobile stuff. Uh, and that's when I actually turned to Apple. Before that, I was super anti-Apple. And then Apple's like, oh, right, these are just better computers. And now I'm all in on <laughs> Apple. Um, so yeah, so that's my experience. I tell people I've been writing code for literally 35 years. I've been, I, I think in, in code. Um, now the last five years I've been mostly management, but I still think in code. So between us, like we have very different backgrounds of how we got to where we got to, but ultimately this is stuff that we do. It pays the bills. Um, and sometimes we can do fun things with it. And I started just recently writing a game for board game arena and it got me thinking about all these digital adaptations of board games and what goes into them. So I want to cover it. We're going to cover it at a pretty high level. If you've never heard of 
anything like, you know, programming languages, you know, Fletcher mentioned Objective C. Um, I think I mentioned another thing. I'll, any of those terms we'll explain as we go to the point where you don't have to know anything to understand what we're about to talk about. Um, but does that seem, Fletcher, we're on the same page on this? Yeah. Sounds All right. Good. So let's talk about where these games could be found. And we're talking specifically board games, not video games, video games and to be clear, a digital version of a board game is a video game in all ways. The only difference yeah. is it existed in a board game format first. Um, and we're looking specifically at those. Even things like Slay the Spire, which is a card game that started in digital f- form um, and then kickstarted to make it an actual board game, card game. Um, that to me is a video game. Um, Hearthstone is a video game. These are not board games. So... The the concepts are very, very, very similar, uh, but how you approach designing a game is very different from if I'm porting something that exists in the physical world to if I'm creating something brand new. So that's just to put us kind of, you know, narrow our scope here. So um, I want to talk about the various platforms that these games can exist on. Um and and Fletcher, I'm gonna I have notes in here, and I'm just gonna kind of go back and forth, so I'm not saying everything. Um, but why don't you talk about the first platform? Because I know you've played multiple board games on this platform, on web, <laughs> on the web, which is a platform. It is a platform. Uh, it's not a great platform. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I guess the web is actually a pretty great platform. Um, where I've played board games on the web. I think has exclusively been board game arena. I can't think of, well, no, that's not true. I've definitely played checkers and chess and I have no idea where, but I have played those games on the web. Yep. Um, and I guess that, you know, the web is just very accessible. Pretty much everyone has a computer or something that can access the web and pretty much any device can access the web. And if you can access the web, you can probably play these games because they're probably all done in JavaScript. It's my yep. guess. Or various other things. Now, again, that was a jargon. I'm going to throw it out there. JavaScript um, is a program. Is So there's three different languages that drive the web primarily. Um, you have HTML, which most people, if you're on the web, you understand when that you've heard of HTML. This is what we call yep. a markup language. It essentially says, hey, if I put a bold here and then a word and then say, stop being bold here... I've marked up that word and said it's bold. So that's what we talk about when we're talking about HTML. Um, it is far more complicated than that. Bold is one of those things you could do, but um, far more complicated. CSS stands for Cascading Style Sheets. And what this is, early on in the whole history of the World Wide Web, people are like, you know, this HTML stuff, it's fine, but it's kind of clunky to do anything good. So let's create a way of like making the web look good. And that's what CSS is. So CSS, HTML makes the web exist, essentially. CSS makes the web look good. It's what you use to make, you know, things move around and size and scale and all that kind of stuff. And then JavaScript is what you do to make the interfaces. The web crash. The web crash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to make the interfaces smart, to make them react to what you're doing. Um, that's typically the JavaScript aspect of it. Um, so those are those the three main languages that are used on everything you do on the web. And if you're doing any kind of web programming, you are doing all three of those almost guaranteed. There's exceptions, yeah. but typically those three are going to be involved in everything. 
They're completely different languages. They have completely different syntax. They have completely different purposes. They have completely different everything, but you must know all of them to be relatively functional on on web. Um, in the industry, we also call that front-end development because web development tends to be the person that tends to be the interface that's in front of you. Um, so that's that front-end. So the next platform... Sorry. When Chris says front end, he means like user facing, meaning like the yeah. person that is staring at the screen. So front end. Yeah. yeah. And if we say back end, that's server facing. That's no one ever sees the back end, but the back end is what remembers everything and stores everything. Um, kind of drives the front end. Exactly. Now, there's another, in a lot of these, we're, we're always talking about front end stuff, but back end is always there. Um, so the next thing, Fletcher, something we're very familiar with, take it yeah. away. Uh, so app like native mobile, so mobile apps, uh, these come in actually a quite a, diff, quite a few flavors now. Um, but you have your two main, obviously you have Android and iOS. Those are the two main platforms. Um, on the iOS side, things are going to be, if you develop native, it's going to be in, uh, objective C or more likely Swift now. Yeah. Most things are Swift moving now. that way. Those are two different languages. I'll let Chris explained what those are in a second. And then on uh, Android side, everything will be developed in either Java, which is not JavaScript. Um, Chris will go into that in a second. Or <laughs> yeah. uh, is it Kotlin? Kotlin, Kotlin. their newer yep. one, right? Yep. Um, and there are a lot of other cross-platform tools that you can use. Like I know, Chris, you use React Native, which is javascript that will then compile natively to both platforms simultaneously um and there's some other ones out there that you can use that will uh, that are cross-platform tools i know that unity has like a cross-platform tool so you can write everything in their special code or i think they use um c sharp which is like microsoft's kind of language that will then cross-platform um but uh, yeah, I'll let Chris take it away from there. <laughs> yeah. So, and just to elaborate, and again, um, it's really the reason I'm bringing this up is because when we talk about the details of like the difficulty of doing this, understanding that there's so many different elements involved is important. Everyone's, well, not maybe not everyone, but a fair amount of people have heard me complain about people who are unwilling to spend a dollar for an app, right? Um, there's <laughs> yeah. a reason why you should spend a dollar for an app. I complain. So, I complain too. They're like, "Oh, but that one cost ninety nine cents." I'm like, ninety nine cents. You know yeah. how many blood, sweat, and tears this developer had to shed to get your ninety nine cents, and then get thirty percent of that taken away yep. by and Apple or Google? Uncredited developers are typically uncredited on everything they work on. You know, people talk about the designer's name should be on the box. I'm like, okay, sure. But I've spent like four years of my life on this piece of software that no one will ever know my name ever. Um, so yeah, anyway. Um, so with iOS and Android, uh, in the early days, it was Objective-C versus Java. Uh, these were two different languages. Objective-C was something that only Apple ever used. And when it first came out, people were like, what, what's this? Um, this is a weird looking language. It's a weird looking language that everyone's like, I, I don't get it. And then Java was a um, company called Sun Microsystems actually developed Java and then released it. And it was, in my mind, a failed language. I still think it's a failed language. But um, it did a lot of server-side stuff. So people would use it on when you never actually see it used. But it became the Android language because that's what Google decided to use there. Um, well, both of these languages are fairly... Eh, 
old as far as languages are concerned for development languages. So Apple developed a new language called Swift and Google adopted a new language called Kotlin. And these are modern programming languages. It doesn't really matter. The The point to know is there are two different languages on both platforms that could be used, one or the other or both in any application you might use. Um, and if you want to do applications on both iOS and Android, for the longest time, you had to write completely separate programs on both iOS and Android. You need two teams, usually of two specialized, you know, two specialized teams of developers. And it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare to manage. It was a nightmare to be a part of. Uh, you know, iOS was typically usually always better because the tools were better and, you know, there was less devices to test on. Um, but it was, it was just terrible. Well, Facebook came along and wrote a, what we call a framework. So frameworks are things that developers can use, but it doesn't change the language. It's just a way of speaking in that language that allows you to, you know, do something easier. And Facebook came along and said, you know something, we're huge and we can't do this separate iOS, separate Android, separate desktop anymore. Let's just like we have three completely separate development teams, all of them with different features, different bugs, different issues. So they came up with a um, framework called React, which was for front end development, web development. And then about a year and a half, two years later, they came up with a version of React Native that runs on iOS and Android. Um and React Native, you know, Fletcher mentioned cross-platform. This is a language where I can write once and run on both iOS and Android the same code, which really changed our lives because we were writing native, Fletcher and I were iOS, we were writing native code on iOS devices. And now when we wrote code, we, our code would run on Android as well. And we just, we stopped doing native development completely um, and doing this. And in, in doing that, we also learned how to write code for the web because we had not really focused on web at all. Um, so this is a framework that has kind of unified everything you can do in one spot. And it's great um, to an extent. It's, you're still not super, you're not writing for web and mobile at the same time, but you're writing for two mobile devices at the same time. There's down there's downsides. I mean, there's downsides to everything, but yeah. it, it is a it is a pretty nifty framework. I think the upsides far outweigh the downsides on on that particular framework. Like it's it's just really nice. It's just really nice. I I really like it. Um, so next platform we're gonna look at is native desktop, and this is actually like the primary for like PC gaming. You see native desktop. Is, is sort of where you go. And by native desktop, we typically usually mean Windows. Windows is where gamers go to game. It's um, the dominant platform. It's the dominant far. platform. Yep. If you have a Mac, you're like, okay, I have a, a very limited amount of choices. Um, although it's gotten a lot better over the years. Like all the big games will come out in Mac and PC. Um, it's all the, yeah, it's gotten a lot better, I think, partly because if you're a huge game, you probably just develop for both platforms anyway. And the cross development tools have just gotten way better. So it's just like, Oh, I can click this other button and I can compile for Linux and Mac as well. Okay. Yep. And it's just, it just makes life nice to be able to, you know, like if you, again, cross 
cross-compatible means write once, run on multiple different machines. Um, now, this has been happening in the console games forever. Um, you know, uh, Xbox, uh, PlayStation, GameCube, or whatever, you know, Nintendo. uh, Nintendo's doing. Um, all of these things, you're typically writing the game once, and then it, it gets ported to all of these other platforms without the game writer doing too much. Um, there are many considerations when you're doing it, but it, it becomes that you're not writing three completely separate things. So today, though, most of our board games, if a board game is going to be computer only, it's going to probably be distributed on Steam. And Steam is, I can't speak to it too much, but I believe it is not as a distribution platform for sure. But I also believe there is some kind of development platform to it as well. I don't know, Fletcher, do you know much about how like a Steam game, I, I for the longest time I thought there was like a Steam OS, but I don't think there really is. There used to be like a Steam console and I know it's like everything is backed by Valve, which it was a that's a like game studio, game developer studio, game development studio. Um, but I don't know too much about that because they have like the Steam Greenlight program where they you can put in you know, like alphas and betas of games, and if they get enough traction, then you know they can get funded. And uh, I don't actually know that much about it, but it's yeah. kind of like a pseudo development platform as well. Not really, but kind of. Yeah. Well, and for me, when something's released on Steam, I'm like, okay, that's fine. I'm never going to do it. Like, I, I hate Steam. All it does is sit on my computer, run in the background, and crash periodically. Yeah. Like, I hate yes. Steam. Gloomhaven, it's not a very good uh, portal or interface. Yeah, I oh, I hate it. But Gloomhaven actually made me go to Steam. I have exactly three games, well, three things on Steam. Gloomhaven, um, Tabletop Simulator, which I also hate. We'll get to that in a second. And um, so, so I think Supreme Commander 2, which I got 15, 20 years ago. Um, this is this game is so old that it doesn't actually run on anything. Uh, I don't even know what that is. It's, it was one of the best real-time strategy games of its era. So let's talk about the frameworks, though. Um, so frameworks, and not really, maybe the better way to say this is platforms. Board Game Arena is a platform that you can develop on. Tabletopia is a web-based generic system where you can just put, upload assets, but it doesn't enforce the rules. And Tabletop Simulator is the most popular of the platforms which is a 3d interface only available through steam um which you can upload assets and mods mods are just like little mini programs that will help you play the game but again don't enforce the rules um tabletop simulator over the pandemic became like the way of pitching and playtesting games uh and i'm glad it exists i just hate it i hate it so much i hate everything (laughs) about tabletop simulator it's infuriating. You, you don't need a 3D interface to play a 2D board game, for one. And I spend so much time just w- fiddling with the interface that I'm like, you know, it, it is actually easier to just set up a game on my actual table and, and play it that way versus on Tabletop Simulator. Yeah, just get pieces of construction paper and like cut them out. And just- <laughs> I, I honestly, I honestly feel it's easier. Now, I know that Tabletop Simulator, once you get over the massive learning curve is probably fine and and publishers are now you know preferred that's their preferred way of submitting games as tabletop simulator and stuff like that i get that that's fine it's just not a way that i enjoy playing games but i have found that i really enjoy board game arena um now there's some other ones too i think like uh someone's gonna correct me in chat i'm gonna say yucatan or yucata or yokuda or um 
there's another one. There's there's several different ones. Um, Super Duper Games was uh, Yukata. So why Yukata dot D E? Yeah. So you why you or is it why you or why a? Um, why you you okay? Why you C A T A dot D E? Um, so this is kind of a board game arena type game uh, site as well. I don't think it has as many games, but it does have different games. So if you don't find something on board game arena, you can go to there. There's some overlap, obviously, as well. But um, so these are sites that get permissions from the publisher to put their games on these sites. And recently, I emailed. Um, Oh, I'm going to feel embarrassed by this, which is why I'm going to look this up. Um, I I need a vamp quickly while Chris looks up uh, the name of this person or the designer. Um, Griffin Hill, or Graf Hill, Graf Hill Games um, for Hadrian's Wall, because I really, really love this game. And there was a couple other... Um, games on Board Game Arena or in the development site, you can see who, where the licenses are. And they did Paladins of the West Kingdoms. I think they did that line as well because I saw them on there. So I emailed them about Hadrian's Wall and said, hey, I would be interested in writing this for Board Game Arena. I swear to you, within 15 minutes, I got a response saying, yes, we're interested. And there's other games we're interested in doing as well. Now, there's a couple things to this. Board Game Arena is a community driven site. So if you put a game on there, every game on Board Game Arena is some developer donating their time. Maybe not every game. The publishers might you know, pay developers to put their games up there. But in general, Board Game Arena, the site itself, is not paying developers anything for this. It is, And, it, and it's not volunteer, because that leads you into different laws as well. It is community-driven. If you have a passion for a particular game and you want to put it up there, you can. You can just write it and make it. The technology behind Board Game Arena is 20 years old. <laughs> it looks it 20 is, years old. It's, it's when you, I've been programming for a really long time and I'm like, wow, th- this is just throwback. This is throwback everything. And modern developers. They use RESTful APIs. <laughs> no, they use Ajax. They don't. They use, really? Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, That's so. We just again two points of jargon that we put out there. I'm gonna I'm gonna say I'm gonna add a third one. Um, so we have restful soap and and Ajax, and they're they're unrelated and they're kind of related at the same time. But the point is, when you're interacting with something on a web browser, it is talking to a server someplace, and how it talks to that server could be a number of different defined ways that this happens. And today's world. We use typically what we refer to as RESTful APIs. Um, REST is a big acronym for something. API is an application programmer interface. But essentially, it's kind of like a, a standardized way that the, the my web browser is going to talk to a server. There's been a lot of different ways that this has happened over the years. And the one that Board Game Arena uses is one that was very popular in the late 90s, early 2000s, and has since not been used. Um, because it's most just, everything you use as you know front end. I, I guess apparently not board game arena, but like most everything that you know, your phone, websites, anything that talks to a computer in the sky will probably use RESTful or REST. And it is very strange to come across something that doesn't use REST. And it's it's nerve wracking, like to the point of like, yes. well, well, huh? So 
so, but Board Game Arena was started by just two guys in, like, I think 2002 or something like that, that liked board games. So they just kind of built this site with the technologies that they knew at the time. And it wasn't until the pandemic that the site really took off. Like, the early weeks of the pandemic, the site kept crashing because the demand was so high. And they had to scale it up. And in the last two years, it's they've gotten, like, just a crazy amount of really, really good games that you can go on and most of them you can just play for free. And the ones you can't, the ones that are premium, it's like, I don't know, $30 a year or something like that to just have access to all these premium games or just know someone who starts it for you because you don't have to play, you don't have to be a paying member to play a premium game. You just have to be a paying member to start a premium game. And the entire site has two full-time employees. The two founders are finally like, okay, we take a salary, but most of the premium money goes to play, paying publishers who we license the games with. And everything else is community-driven on this. I like what BGA does. I'm Even when I wasn't doing playing it as nearly as often as I am now, which is literally as I'm talking now, whenever I, I tell Fletcher to talk, I'm taking my turn on another game. Um, <laughs> it's it, Even when, before that, I'm like, what BGA is doing is really, really cool. And... I want to contribute to this platform, which is an enormous barrier of entry to to do anything with. Now, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out some numbers here, uh, which I don't mean to throw out for any reason besides just to kind of give people comparison. But Hadrian's Wall is a roll and write. If you've never played it, it's probably the most complicated roll and write that doesn't have dice. It's a flip and write um, in existence. I don't think most people would argue against that everyone says fleet the dice game i've already tried that it's like sure take fleet the dice game multiply it by 10 and then you get to hadrian's wall um it's just a roll and write though right so i'm like yeah this should be a pretty easy one to get up and going on i will spend probably i I would say when all is said and done maybe 200 hours on this game um 200 hours is you know it's it's maybe you know six weeks or something of you know, it's actually action. not that long. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, because it's not that much to it. And the platform really does handle, it handles all the lobbying stuff, all of the starting up the games, tearing down the games, all of that. All I have to worry about is the graphics, the interface, the rules, the, you know, interactions between players, being able to be turned place real time, you know, all the, all that stuff, which is you know, no big deal. Right. Um, in general, though, and this is, if I were, I'm, my, main job is I'm a technical manager, so um, we consult out programmers. Well, the average, the cheapest you would ever find a programmer, um, and this is like intern, you get an intern out of college, is $40 an hour. So you can say at $200 for an intern, you're going to spend $8,000 to do this, which doesn't sound like a lot of money. And it, it, it isn't in the grand scheme of things. But I don't think an intern is going to do this business, in 200. Anyway. Exactly. I mean, it could be. My billing rate is far higher than that. But the billing rate <laughs> of someone, like an average person, an average developer, like if I was to hire a contractor, a contractor would probably charge me about $120 an hour. And now we're talking $24,000 to develop this roll and write game of Hadrian's Wall. Um, and that is probably more on par with like what it would actually cost if a publisher wanted to go out and get this game written by a developer. I'm doing it for free. 
Now, I can't write this off, right? Because there's no monitor. I'm just, it's just, hey, I like this game and I like this platform. So I'm going to write this game for you. But that's how BGA can do what they do is everything is volunteer work. Because I I don't know what the exact numbers are, but I would say probably close to 95%, if not higher, of the users on BGA don't pay for it. So you can't actually pay developers to do this. Um, In the role-playing side, I hear all the time, it's like, oh, we need to pay the writers, you know, make sure they're getting paid what they're worth, you know, five cents a word, 10 cents a word, whatever the, the going rate is. Nobody cares about the developers. Like, yeah. nobody cares that, hey, I wrote this game on BGA and I should actually get paid for that work. And that's partly soapbox, but it's partly just understanding there is so much that goes into developing one of these games. So let's talk about that for a, just a bit. Um, and we're gonna, I'm just going to talk about the skills needed to, to start with. Um, and, and, and Fletcher, why don't you start with the first one? Because this is basically what you end up writing, right? This is, this is your main, um, thing. And, and for the, for the record, Fletcher, you currently still work at Foot Locker doing the Foot Locker app, right? That's correct. iOS yeah. native, Swift, yes, Foot Locker. Swift. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. you are primarily working on the interface to the user. That's correct. All right. So tell um, me, is that hard? Like, what is, what is your day to day? Like, um, so yeah, I mean, I, this, like any app on your phone or at least most of them, you know, what, what you see is designed by, well, a designer probably, but then has to be implemented by the developer. You get a spec sheet essentially from a designer that's like, we want it to look like this and it needs to function this way. It's called UX and UI, user interface and user experience. Um, and then it's my job to implement that. So uh, if you need it, like a vertically scrolling list of images with some text n- near it, I can, I won't get into the jargon, but like, I have to be like, okay, I need to use this tool and I, it needs to be arranged this way. And I have to make sure that I can display the whole list and that it scrolls properly and all that kind of stuff. A lot of this stuff is kind of built for you already. So you just have to like implement it. Um, but then the other piece is like, okay, where's the data going to come from? And you know, 99.99% of the time, the data is not already on the phone. You're getting it from a server somewhere. So you need to make a call to the server using hopefully RESTful APIs that we talked about earlier. Um, and you get back that data and you have to display it in a way that makes sense. Hopefully it comes to you in a way that makes sense. And if not, then that's a whole problem that you're going to have to deal with. Um, and uh, yeah, that's basically what I do in a nutshell quickly without... <laughs> Hopefully, too yeah, much without jargon. going into too much crazy, crazy jargon, it's yeah. There's just a lot to it. So, and you mentioned data. Um, so, how you interact with the services on the back end. So, those are these servers. Um, how that data is structured. You know, making sure that what the user is doing is like how the when the user clicks a button. If you're interacting with a server someplace, that's not instantaneous. So you have to make sure the user can't do things. And these are the subtle things that you will never notice because unless we do it wrong, you would never need to notice it. And or maybe you do notice, but you don't really know what's going on. And that's like what we call like throwing up, throwing up a spinner. So <laughs> yeah. if you tap on something and a little loading spinner comes up and then whoop, you're onto the next screen. It's because you tap that button. We had to make a call to the network and say, please give me this data. <laughs> but we also had to put the spinner up there because if we didn't, you just keep clicking on the button because you didn't know there was anything 
like nothing's happening, right? So these are the types of interfaces. And then you get six screens presented to you at once. (laughs) Exactly, which becomes a huge (laughs) other issue. So there's a lot of stuff that goes on there. The other main piece, so we have interface, data, networking. The other one is the rule sets. This is the logic of the game. Uh, what a lot of people like calling algorithms. Like I hear this na- this word thrown around so often. It's like the algorithms this and the algorithms that and algorithms are evil. Um, I think most people, <laughs> if you ask, is like, is an algorithm evil? Of course it's evil. Uh, no, it's not. It, everything you do in life, there's some kind of logical rule set, which is an algorithm that handles it. Um, but that is the other piece of it is like making sure that every aspect of what you can do is handled in that rule set. And this is handled at not... So if you think rule books are bad, they are. When you read a rule book, it's it's like this is a human trying to read and parse the rules in a rule book. An algorithm. An algorithm, essentially. (laughs) When you're writing a computer program, you are writing a rule book, but there can be no ambiguity at all in any place whatsoever. Everything has to have a very specific response to it. And one of the things you try to do as a programmer is make sure that you're not what we call special casing everything, or everything's an exception to a, a, you know, here's the established rules. You're always going to play a card. It's always going to follow suit. Great. That's an easy thing to write. It's always going to follow suit unless this or that. And then if this happens, then this can happen. And so often I hear the things like, okay, it's always going to work this way except for this one thing. I'm like, as soon as you say that except, the always no longer applies. Because I only can worry about the exception because the exception is now the rule. There are no exceptions in programming. They're all rules. So that's part of like when you're creating a rule set, trying to digest how the rules work and how this works and how the flow works. Going back again to Hadrian's Wall... Uh, the way this game works is you flip up a card and you're going to get a certain number of resources and then you're going to draw two cards from your own personal deck and you're going to choose one to be your goal and another one to get resources from. In order to check a box, you need to spend resources and have certain prerequisites met. Now, what I just said, have prerequisites met and spend resources, this is a generic rule. This is easy to say, yeah, this is just the way it is, except for gladiators, except for scouting, except for five other sections on these sheets that don't conform to that. And that's easy for me to explain. It's like, okay, here you can pick any worker as opposed to the specific worker. As a human explaining to another human, that makes sense. As someone writing code to do that, it's like, okay, and here I need to completely code this separately from everything else because it doesn't work the same way as everything else, even though it seems like it does to the end user. And that's my goal. So in, in the industry, we call this the happy path versus <laughs> the non-happy path. Exactly. <laughs> we literally call it that. Yep. We have the happy path working. All right. Now let's work on the other ones because, you know, 80% of the, the game is done. Cool. It took 20% of the time. The other 20% of the game, and these are not made up numbers. The last no. 20% of any project, game or not, takes up 80% of your time. It's all the exceptions. Yep. It's coding the exceptions. So it is, it's just a great deal of work on that kind of thing. Now, I talked about time and saying, okay, I think Hadrian's Wall, I think I should be able to do that in about 200 hours. I think this varies. Now, if we take a look at Ganshan Clever, 
um, which is an app that you know we talked about a couple of weeks ago. This game, I think I could do that in a week or two, so 40 to 80 hours, um, a full app of what they did there. I think they probably spent a lot longer on it. But just to give you an idea of like, you know, man hours to create something like a clone of Ganshan Clever would be about two weeks. Fletcher, have you played the Root app on the iPad? Yes, I have. Give me your best guess on how many man hours, not calendar time, but man hours that was spent to make that app. Oh, man, I have no idea. They spent a long time. <laughs> that game is very polished. Um, yeah, I don't know. A long, a lot. All right. I am going to guess it probably took six years of man hours. And if we say 52 weeks a year, six years, 40 hours a week, and we'll just put a $100 um, number in there for per hour. Now, six, six years of man time, this is developers, artists, and that. And I'm probably still way under undershooting this. The numbers also come out. animators. There's animations. Animations. There's all kinds. 3D artists. There's dialogue. There's writing. Yep. Yeah. That's that's coming in at my number here, 1.2 million. I would not take on this project for 1.2 million. I would say 3 million. If I was if I was quoting it myself, I would say 3 million to do that particular project. Now I have no insight as as to what this game costs the the developer of it. They have a development studio. They have a lot of engines. Um, engine is essentially stuff that already exists where they can take advantage of it, reuse stuff. All this stuff, a lot of the stuff is in place. So they can take shortcuts in a lot of cases. But Root is an incredibly polished and amazing app. One of the best apps out there. Gloomhaven, I would say, is probably five times the complexity level of Root. Like if they were to, if they developed that for anything less than $5 million, I would be shocked. Like, just floored, shocked. Um, I'm guessing it's probably so? closer to 10. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it's way closer to $10 million. Um, because Gloomhaven is a full-fledged PC game. In, I mean, true. 3D animations, uh, 17 different characters, uh, what, like 20-some different, you know, fully animated um, enemies. Like, just because it's turn-based, if you imagine, like, a shooter with that level of different characters and scenery and all that stuff, you're looking at, you know, 10 million easy. So when, when I say Gloomhaven costs $35 on steam, I I think it's worth it. (laughs) Yeah. And that's why Um, they can charge $35 as opposed to, you know, $3,500. Yes. And, and because they have to, like, you have to make the quantity and they knew, they knew what they were building and it took them. I mean, they were in public beta for, I think two years. Um, and it wasn't just five people working on it for two years. Like, I guarantee you it was more than five people for two years. And I guarantee that before they went to public beta, they'd been working on it for a good solid year. Um, that game's intense. There's there's a lot to it. They That company took a huge risk on, on this game. Now, what they ended up doing was building something that I was willing to buy, download, and play again. After playing through the physical copy, we play it. We play two scenarios every Friday night, and we're continue. We're going to play through the whole thing. When Jaws of the Lion content comes out, we'll pay for that again too. So they won. They won on that bet. <laughs> but the amount of effort that went into that is insane. It's like it's so crazy. I, I think part of the reason they won on that bet is, and I think you would agree that maybe Gloomhaven is a better video game than it is 
a board game because it's a little too fiddly <laughs> There's as a board game. so many things that the video game does that I love, that I'm so happy that I don't have to worry about setting it up and tracking everything and all that. The pr- only problem I have with it is I can't use my house rules. Um, oh, yeah. There are ways of modding certain things. Uh, I modding literally modifying certain things. You can modify card text, and you know you can modify what the cards do essentially, but you can't change the rules. The rules are written in code, and they don't have a way of changing those rules. That's not always the case. There are many times where we 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 refer to things like scripting. Scripting is just another way of writing code, but the scripts tend to be something that can be accessible outside of like the the core of the code. Um, And if you're able to do that, then you can actually change the code after the fact. When we talk about something like React Native, the way React Native works is there's a core on iOS and a core on Android, and I write a script that runs on both of those platforms. So you can actually change that script I, I can make that script changeable to other people if I wanted to, is is really what it comes down to. Gloomhaven, though, they're not opening up the rules. I can't change and make my elemental element rules work so that if I use an element potion, I can actually take advantage of that element potion on my same turn that I do when I'm playing the game in person. I, I, there's It's a mixed blessing, though, right? Like, all of this stuff, it's like, well, it's enforcing the rules. I'm playing by the rules. So I guess there's that. Everyone's playing by the same thing. But man, it's so frustrating when I can't change it. <laughs> but I can't change it if I was playing it on my table. Um, yeah. All right. Let's talk about one well, two other things in importing uh, board games to digital. And first is virtual players, also known as hmm. artificial intelligence. Have, have you ever written an AI? Um. Yes, a very crude one for tic-tac-toe. There you go. And how did that work? Like, how did how did you approach that? Um, it was basically just like the way I made it for tic-tac-toe. And this was during like my coding boot camp was, was like the player always goes for the, the human always goes first and then the AI would go. And it was just kind of like a simple set of rules where it's like uh, first, if the middle if the middle space is unoccupied, take the middle space because that's the most valuable space. Um, and then look for, uh, um, go for the corners. And if there's any two in a row, like block them first. Uh, and then if there's any two of like the, Oh, cause the, the AI was, Oh, if there's any two of those in a row, um, go for those that would complete that. Yeah. And I got it to a point where, um, it was always a cat's game. So like yeah. you could the always a stalemate. you would never win. Yeah, it's always a stalemate. You could never win. Yeah. And that's what um, it that's what a tic-tac-toe AI should come to. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what you just mentioned, what you just talked about is what we call heuristic based AI, which is rules based. Yeah. You know, based on if this or this and this, do this, this or this, right? Um there's also neural network based AIs. If you've ever heard of like Big Blue, the chess thing, or um, Google has their whatever they call their Go AI. Um, these are neural networks. We, as a computer science, um, I want to say industry, but it's not really that. It's just like, just academically, we do not understand how they work. Like, even the people who are writing them and coming up with them, we don't understand how they work. 
We know that we can make them do things and we know that we can make them do amazing things, but we don't, we, you can't look at what they're doing and say, this is why this neural network made this decision. The reason is, is because it's sort of, it's modeled after the human brain. We don't know how the human brain works. Yeah. We don't know how the human brain works. We don't know why we make these alpha go, Christopher. Um, we don't know how these, how our brains work and how they make decisions, but we know the core pieces of it. We know that neurons produce chemicals that fire, you know, electrical impulses to other neurons and we can emulate that. And we've gotten to a point, one of my minors in, um, college was um, artificial intelligence. And at the time, we were doing neural network stuff. And it was a dead, it was basically in the 90s, neural networks were just deemed, yeah, it's, it, there's just, they're not going anywhere. Well, they picked up, I don't know, probably 10 years ago now, um, where it's like, oh, we have computers fast enough, enough parallel processors that we can actually make these things do stuff. And we can make them do stuff. We can make them learn games without teaching them the rules. And they'll they'll figure out the rules from from that. So don't worry, they're not going to take over the world. It's just not how neural networks and artificial intelligence works. Um, they're they're very good self- at doing one thing. Yeah, they're good at doing one thing. They're not becoming self aware yet. But the idea of people complaining about AIs in games cracks me up. It really does. It's like this game's way too easy. The AI is crap. I'm like, you have no idea. <laughs> because I think when most people think about AI for a board game, they're thinking the way tic- you were thinking with tic-tac-toe. Well, if this, this, yeah. and this, then this. Well, what I just talked about earlier with exceptions are the bane of developers. Heuristic-based AIs, rule-based AIs, these are all exceptions. Everything's an exception. So you can't actually create a rule set that determines everything that a human player would do. You have to actually come up with a system that says, okay, in this situation, here are things you could do. And typically what you do is you'll weight these options based on something else. There's other ways that you can uh, do AI, like evaluating board states. Chess AR is kind of simple, right? If I move my king here, what's the best move that my opponent's going to make? Well, he's going to take the king. Okay, that seems like a bad move for me to make then, so I'm not going to do that. Like, So you can kind of play the game out a couple turns. That's another way of doing something where it's just all open information. But hidden information in modern board games, those types of AIs, the fact that they do them at all is amazing to me. Like, I'm just like, that's awesome. Also, I love, love beating the AI because it makes me feel smart, so... <laughs> I don't actually have a problem with that. Um, but yeah, now when you're looking at something like Board Game Arena, they're not worried about the AI. And one of the things that they do focus on, so you might have solo modes in that, um, where they just run the solo mode of the AI that comes with the board game. And I love that. Like, um, you know, all of Stonemeyer's games have a solo mode that comes with it. You flip a card, you do whatever. That's just an AI. It's just an AI that's basically yeah. saying, here, do this random thing. And one of my favorite stories, when I first started game development, I was I was working on touchscreen games. Um, it's called the Touchmaster Infinity. It was amazing. And one of the games I was working on was Checkers. <laughs> um, and it was Checkers against an AI. And I'm like, great. I can apply my minor in AI and make this really cool. So I did that. And my boss, who I did not this respect. This unwinnable. 
It, <laughs> I, I, I was so, like, I did not like this guy. I did not respect this guy, whatever. But he came in, and he did have some good ideas. But he came in, and he was playing this Checkers AI, and he was constantly being beat by it. And he was infuriated. I'm like, but this is this is just AI. Like it's just, you know, it's it's fine. It's 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 how the game plays. Like, no, this is this is bad. I don't want to lose. Um, there's a rule in checkers where if you can jump, you must jump. And a lot of people don't know about this rule. So AIs yeah. can force you into doing these jumps. It's the only strategy piece in checkers at all, is forcing people to jump. And I finally, he's like, I don't like that rule. I wanted to do this because that would have put me in a bad situation. I'm like, that's the whole point of the game. So we finally settled that's on not checkers. That's your yes. own game. We had two versions of checkers. One had frogs on lily pads jumping over each other. And the AI, well, and then one had spaceships. The spaceships one was an AI that was actually hard. Like it thought it forced you to jump when you had to jump. The frogs one, it did not force you to jump. And the AI, in all seriousness, was a random number generator. Pick a chip and move it randomly, completely randomly. He loved it. If you couldn't move the chip, if you couldn't move the chip, then uh, pick another. It just one. pick a different. It just pick a different one. Yep. Yeah. It's like if you can jump, yeah. great. If you can't, just randomly pick a chip and do a random valid move with that chip. That was the most popular version of the game by far. By far, people <laughs> yeah, because loved people could win against that. it. Yeah, and and people never realized it was just a random number generator, and in a lot of cases. <laughs> That's fine. Like when you're in a restricted, you know, rule set, sometimes chaos is just as challenging as something that's trying to think against you. You know, it's like, well, I can't plan what you're going to do, right? So it's it's just, I don't know. It's a lot of fun. Anyway, <laughs> um, I put some other notes down here. Um, actually, I think we covered pretty much everything at a very high level. Yeah. Hopefully, we didn't turn too many people off and kind of gave you some insight into what it takes to write video games for people. And I can only implore you to really, software, there's so much that goes into it. I just go ahead and pay the dollar. Pay just the pay the dollar. Pay the dollar. Pay the $10. <laughs> it is a passion. It is a passion to write games. Um, I'm like I said, I'm volunteering my time for this Hadrian's Wall, and I'm going to get it to work. And I'm going to get it to work because why? I want my listeners to play a Hadrian's Wall tournament, and it's going to happen. And it's going to happen within the. Uh, I, I say 200 hours is just true, but I can only work on it maybe 10 to 20 hours a week because I have a full time job, I have kids, I have you know other things I need to do. But I I'm passionate about making this work because I love this game and I love this community and. Hey, I want to promote this. And the other part of it too is maybe, maybe if I do a few games and show publishers that, hey, this is what I can do, maybe publishers are willing to pay for some development on this. You know, not full yeah. price, but, you know, I mean, if I were a publisher, I wouldn't be a like, bit. yeah, random person emailed me, sure, I'll pay you $20,000 to port my game. But if they're like, oh, you did these five really cool games, yeah, let's talk. Let's talk about compensation in some way. But, that's how you get into the industry. The game industry is not an easy industry to get into because you just have to work your butt off for hourly rates. Oh, my God. We used to calculate our our pay and we're like, okay, if we do it per hour, we would make more money working at Wendy's than game <laughs> development. And that was a while ago, but I, I'm not sure that game, that's too game far Game development is different than software development, mm-hmm. though. Game development... Game development is known for their long, long hours. And 
for some reason, not as great pay as just normal software development. Yep. And I, I don't know why that is, but that's what the industry is known for. So post-credits, I'm going to ask Fletcher a question uh, related to this topic. Uh, but we're going to get to the credits first, and and then we'll talk about the rest of it post-credit. So um, I'll read Kitty's part. Adjusted glasses here. Tabletop Game Talk is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. You can be a part of our live recording Monday nights at 8.30 Central or join our Discord to talk to us all week long. Both links are in the show notes. You can also email us at feedback at tabletop game. I really need to just get the tgt.com link. Feedback at tabletopgametalk.com. Hosting fees and giveaways are sponsored by our patrons. Thank you, our patrons. If you'd like to be one of them, you can find out how at our website, tabletopgametalk.com, or you can just go to patreon.com slash tabletopgametalk. Uh, finally, I will pass it to Fletcher. <laughs> See, I don't know when you're going to stop, unlike Kitty, because she always reads everything that's there verbatim. <laughs> nah. and you're just like, and ba ba da ba da ba da Fletcher, take over. <laughs> that's what we call Chris, the king of segues. That's what I'm saying. Finally, a huge thank you to our current patrons. Adam Harrison, Miles Clark, The Gift of Games, Sahara Wentworth, Jason Strong, John Lewis, Joe Hoover, Danita Hersey, Jim Conrad, Lightning Steve, Gary Bunker, Peter Fleming, Andrew Fayesh. John Williams, David Rank, Sir Sully, Matthew Droke, Jimothy, Paul Romer, Nicholas Lott, Weatherman Keefe, Joe Punman, Leanne Verholst, Stephen Judd, Christopher Letgo, Marina Stevens, Gary, Ben Gary, Sean Peck, Michael Yanikowski, Jeremy Fisher, Jason Marks, Christopher Dong, Terrence Miltner, Richard Yossi, Token Fan Forever. Token, yeah, Token Fan Forever. <laughs> Sorry, it's the only name that's not a name, so I'd always, I always stumble <laughs> over that one. David Radke, Brian Arnold. David Wagoner, Courtney Falk, Ryan Ellett, Dan Seed, Darren McClellan, David Garner, Tony Simpkins, Jesse Wheeler, Charles Pearson, Agnes Toth, Ron Nelson, Aaron Moore, Don Gilstrap, Glenn Cotter, Eric Salander, Adrian Dong, Eric Huffman, Jason Rodney, Justin Willard, Jerry Wong, and Sean P. Kelly. And thank you to anyone who's ever been a patron. Your support means the world to us. Uh, until next week, keep playing games and having fun. All right, so Fletcher, is there any game, board game, that you would be willing to not only volunteer your time, but learn PHP, SQL, uh, Dojo, which is a JavaScript framework, you know JavaScript already, uh, and then like standard CSS, and the board game arena framework that you would want to write a game on board game arena, any game at all? I mean, I feel like if I was doing this, I should start out with something easy. Oh, also, the it's only free. one of those things. What? <laughs> also, it's volunteer, completely volunteer. You're not getting paid for any of this, right? No, I, I, I get that. <laughs> um, I, I would say I would want to do something easy because the only thing I know a bit of is JavaScript. Everything else, I would be, you know, learning from scratch. So I'd probably say like checkers. <laughs> <laughs> checkers has been done. <laughs> So, well, all right. And I'll say this. So part of the fun of doing this, at least for the first one, is learning these technologies that I kind of skipped over because I never wanted to be like a web developer. Um, and for those who are still listening, this is post-credit. Yes. So we uh, might go that. techie on this. Um, but <laughs> Christopher Dong says left, center, right. No. Um, so I've, ne- I've skipped over like the PHP 
And, you know, really my CSS skills are not great. Um, never heard of Dojo before, but, you know, it seems kind of neat. And I understand why people use it. Use it. Um, so learning those technologies is kind of a fun thing to do. But checkers, I think what you just said is true. You would do something like that. Uh, one of the examples is actually Othello, which is, you know, you know, asynchronous or full information, easy to see game. Uh, but yeah. that's going to take Simple you probably, set. yeah, it's going to take you a day or two, um, maybe four to eight hours to follow the examples to get that to work. And then you'll probably want to do right now. I've gone through the hearts example. So it's like a trick taking game. Um, so I've gone through like three different examples and I've been working on Hadrian's wall. So when I, when I stumble on something I'm like, okay, let me go follow this other example and see what I can learn from. It. So it's kind of a back and forth thing, but the finished product that I'm working on is Hadrian's wall. So I'm wondering, is there a game that would motivate you enough to actually go through learning examples and going through this and learning these languages because you want to put that out there because it's a game that you really like and you would like to contribute that to the community. So you're saying what game will it take me to learn web development? Yeah. (laughs) No, no, no. What game would take you to the nineties web development? Oh, even better. (laughs) Something that I couldn't even parlay into like my, my career. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if such a game exists. Would you be interested in working with me on a game? Sure. Because that I'll, would be... I'll, I'll, I mean, I, would, I was about to say I'll help you, but I don't know if, what I would, if it would be considered help. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things, too, that I think a lot of people don't realize is, like many things, especially in the creative world, if you're working on it by yourself, Miles Clark says Queen's Gambit, the board game. <laughs> <laughs> That's just chess. <laughs> squad leader, fresh would be the squad. That works. Um, when you are, when you're working on a game, when you're working on anything by yourself, that's creative. You sort of are in this like tunnel, I guess, right? You're, it's hard to like branch out and get different ideas or even like eventually your motivation will fade because you're not bouncing it off someone else. Having somebody else to just say, okay, this is what we're doing next. And, oh, I'll get this done for you by tomorrow so you can work on this other piece. That is motivating. That is something that pushes you forward and makes you want to keep working as opposed to not like, it's like eh, no one else really cares. So I'm just going to be done. Right. I'm just saying, eh, whatever. Right. So just the fact that it's like, eh, yeah, I'd, I'd work on it with you. That's usually enough to make people go like, okay, great, let's do this. Let's make this happen. So I don't know. Would you, I might... would you put this uh, project on like GitHub or something? Oh, yeah, yeah. We just, yeah, I'm already like everything I'm doing. So for those who are still listening, I'm not going too jargony. Um, source control, like every change you make in code, we want to document. And that's what we call source control. We to track that. Track, track it, yeah. Tra- and GitHub is a kind of a universal at this point place to a way of tracking and storing code. So if I were to put something on GitHub, Fletcher could pull down that code and he could modify it, do whatever he wanted, and he could put it back up on GitHub without... I could break it. I yeah. Could, and then put it back up there and Chris would be like, no, you broke this. Yeah. But <laughs> please, I could undo it because it. I have version changes all the way back. and be like, this is the exact change that you did that broke it. Um, and that's vitally important for 
yes. uh, you know, what we do, our industry in general. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I might, I might tap you to say, hey, we should, you know, focus on this and see what we can do and how we can make this work. And I don't know. <sighs> Programming's hard. Send, send me something that you think, <laughs> send me something that you think would be good for me to. Well, um, that's. That's like actually a tutorial or something. If they have. That's actually the big thing. Um, the tutorials on Board Game Arena are horrible. Oh, like good. horrible. Um, the Blackjack one, not the Blackjack. The Hearts one's probably the best, and I think it's the most recent. And it was like written four years ago. It they are not written in a way that it makes sense. Uh, one of the things, and there's no videos. There's no like normally you can YouTube everything. No YouTube on this. Um, it is the contributors are literally across the globe. Uh, there are far more non-English speaking contributors in English, even though the language of development is English and across the board, just in general, the language of development is English, but um, yes, it's still, I do not understand how people can get ramped up on this platform with what's available. I'm impressed of the people that did it. And if you look at the credits of people who are working on games, the vast majority of them have one game they've done and have never come back. <laughs> like never again. Yeah. It's like, nope, this was the one I was passionate about and now I'm moving on. <laughs> so I find that super interesting and something that I, I like as I, I really like what board game arena does, but I can't help. But every time I get into it and start looking into it, it's like, I could write a better platform than this. I could create a better platform than this. And then I go back and forth. like, but should I? Or should I just kind of embrace what's there and what's working and, you know, take the bad that's there or make something brand new and maybe fail at it? <sighs> I don't know. Development's hard. Development's hard. 